Thanks for joining us and supporting Vicky Doe Fitness. We ask for your continued support by becoming an It's All About Health and Fitness premium member. Go to www.vickydofitness.com forward slash join. Again, that's www.vickydofitness.com forward slash join and register for a $6 monthly subscription. And remember, keep listening, sharing, and checking us out. The views and opinions expressed are for general informational purposes only. Consult with your physician or medical health care provider for medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Today, we talk about COVID-19 and the African-American community. Reports and data have shown that the African-American community has been disproportionately hit with COVID-19. We have joining us Ivanka Hall, the Executive Director of the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition, to talk about addressing health disparities and to share with us what she and her organization are doing to cope during this pandemic. All this and more on It's All About Health and Fitness. Welcome to It's All About Health and Fitness with Dr. Vicki Hayward Doe and Dr. Virginia Banks Bright. This program is brought to you by Vicki Doe Fitness, a multimedia health and wellness forum. Now, here's your host, Vicki Doe and D. Banks Bright. I'm Dr. Vicki Haywood Doe, and with me is the one and only Dr. Virginia D. Banks Bright. So, how are you, D? I'm good. That's good. We are here in a bright, sunny day. <laughs> I know. I just I just saw on my phone that there's a weather alert for, from the heat, but I say bring it on. You know, I'm from the south. I love it. Everybody's complaining. Well, I want to see them complaining when we have six feet of snow at our door in the winter. Those are the same people that will be crying how cold it is, right? <laughs> yeah. Enjoy it. It's not going to last long. We only have July and winter in Northeast Ohio. That's it. That, that's it. So enjoy as I sit up here, you know, in my air-conditioned place. Yes, I am happy. I'm happy to, to talk with you again, D. Yeah. Even though we just meeting, it seems like we can't meet. And, and the way people are doing things and the way this COVID, it's going to be a long time before we could just sit up here yeah. and... And breathe on each other. Yeah, it's going to be a while with the uptick, like we're getting an uptick now. So, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be something. It's going to be something. Well, today we talk about COVID-19 and the devastating effect that it is having on our community. Reports and data have been surfacing on how the African-American community has been disproportionately hit with this virus. And folks have been hospitalized and even have died. And so it was reported in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, that in Chicago, more than 50% of COVID-19 cases and nearly 70% of COVID-19 deaths involve black individuals, although blacks make up only 30% of the population. Moreover, these deaths are concentrated mostly in just five neighborhoods on the city's south side. In Louisiana, 70.5% of deaths have occurred among black people, 
who represent 32.2% of the state's population. In Michigan, 33% of COVID-19 cases and 40% of deaths have occurred among black individuals who represent 14% of the population. We are not really surprised because health disparities affect our communities. Black folks suffer from underlying health issues, and it goes on and on. With this information, though, at hand, what can we do personally, our community and organizations? What can we do to fight and get a handle on COVID-19 and other health disparities in our community? And so we have with us Ivanka Hall, the executive director of the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition and co-founder of the Cleveland-led SAFE Network. She is joining us to talk about her organization, which is the first organization in the state of Ohio dedicated to addressing disparities in health, employment, housing, and education in the community. And so we can't wait to hear what she is doing to help our community, most especially in Cleveland, Ohio, the Cleveland, Ohio community, how they are coping and dealing with these days and times, especially dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. So what do you think, Dee? Yeah, I'm really excited to hear her talk since that's a huge topic today. Um, like Dr. Fauci said, that COVID has uh, shined a light on an unacceptable situation with respect to health care disparities. Big time. And so, yes, we can't wait to hear all the things that she's doing in her community. Now, folks, make sure that you check out our website, www.vikidofitness.com, and sign up for our newsletter email list to see all of the updates and changes that we are doing now. We have transitioned some of our programs to be conducted online right now. We are showcasing our step-by-step -step weight loss boot camp masterclass online program. We will be um, scheduling starting the end of this month hosting health wellness webinars workshops for you to participate in which will include a Vikido Fitness Open House so that you can learn more about our signature online program, Step-by-Step -step Weight Loss Boot Camp Masterclass. So make sure, folks, make sure you go to our website, sign up for our newsletter, our email list, because you will be the first to find out information and dates um, when we will be launching our live webinars and workshops. It's coming around the corner, folks, and you do not want to miss this opportunity to learn, to participate in healthy living, and all of those things. And if you want to find out more about our online training, go to the specific website, www.vikidofitness.com forward slash training. And so I can't wait to introduce you to all of our great programs coming down the pipe. So go check it out, folks. Right, D? Absolutely. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. Thank you guys for your support. And thank you for our listeners. We got a lot of folks listening. And I know I keep saying, oh, I'm going to give a shout out. But, yeah, I do have to give a, give a shout out to all the people around the world that are listening to our podcast show. Keep listening, folks. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Keep listening. Since it, it might be that we might not be able to get to your part of the world for a long time. A long time, right? 
that's terrible. Yeah, a long time. You know, a lot of people talk about how they're just upset that their uh, vacations have been canceled. The big, oh yeah, a lot. The big canceling. Sure. You can't. I don't know any place we can go. You can't go anywhere. We're we're talk about being landlocked. You know, the Canadian border's closed, Mexico, you can't go to Europe. I'm sure we're not going to be able to go to Asia. I don't know about Africa, but I would doubt it. So it's hard to know where, I mean, you can't, might as well just stay put. Enjoy the United States. This might be a good time to explore the United States, but then there's COVID. So with all the hot spots, you don't want to venture too far away from your house, period. Right. So I'm just at um, the La Casa, Do La Casa. Me casa is me casa. My house is my house. <laughs> exactly. That's it. Exactly. My week has been hot as hell, but like we were saying, <laughs> we are loving it. I love it. I'm loving it. Love it. You know, I'm getting my vitamin D on, you know, and I'm getting, look, I've noticed that I'm getting my little tan line from, you know, around my face. <laughs> From my mask. That's a good thing. That shows you've been wearing your mask. Absolutely. That's what I've been doing. Wearing my mask, getting my tan line across my face. And then my 4th of July was great because, you know, Natalie came up for a little bit and we we gave her the cleansing routine. She had to take her clothes off, (laughs) shower, do all that. Yes, yes. You have to. Anybody that's coming in your house, you can't take any chances. Nope. Spray them down. You know the routine. Yep. That's what I say. <laughs> yeah, you can't take any chances. There was this guy that came on television this morning who um, was talking about how he uh, had just gotten over COVID and was doing fine and apparently really got over COVID and uh, tested negative a couple of times. And was really feeling great, fine. And then he let some people into his house. He said he kind of, they kind of knew better, but they let some people come in, some children and stuff to play and so forth. And he got it, which appears to be a second time. Wow. Which is all debated. But the two points, it goes to show you can't let anybody in your house. And number two, that maybe antibodies to COVID aren't lasting as long as maybe we think that they are. So that thought that was interesting commentary. That is interesting. So we're, we're yeah. in this thing for a long time, right? Yeah, we're going to be in this for a while. You know, and as long as people continue to be stupid and do stupid things, we're going to be in this longer. But as I said on Facebook yesterday, you might be done with Corona, but Corona's not done with you. Well, there it is. So how yeah. was your week then? Uh, my weekend was pretty good, low key. We spent some time really social distancing on Lake Atwood, which lends itself to that. So we weren't really around anybody, just kind of being on the lake on a pontoon, pontoon boat, just kind of, you know, enjoying. And really, if any boats got close, put our masks on and stuff. So that was fun. And then watch Hamilton. Okay. Had an opportunity to finally watch Hamilton. I had seen it before in Cleveland, but... It was in the nosebleed section. Okay. So I really didn't get a lot out of it. This time with the Disney, I, ha- I didn't have a Disney account. I do now. Okay. Um, was able to see it long, but just absolutely fantastic. And this was the original cast. I know. And Manuel. Yes. Uh, Miranda and that, that troupe. So it was, it was great. So how long is it playing? How long is it playing until? It was two hours. Well, I don't know. They say indefinitely. I don't, you know, I'm not really sure. But I, 
I it, okay. I wanted to make sure that I saw it before they decided to take it off. So I don't know. I'm thinking maybe at least a month. Uh, you could probably Google it to see how long, but it's well worth seeing. But you need to carve out the time because I fall asleep watching movies. This what we did it in the afternoon from like maybe two to four. Okay. Well, maybe actually two to four forty because it was two hours and forty minutes. That's a that's a while. That's a while. That's a long time. Yeah, that's a while. You got to make sure that you're going to be wide awake watching it. So, oh, I know. You can't miss anything. There's a lot of lot of historical detail. Yes, there. yes. I remember seeing it too in um, we saw it in Cleveland. But yeah, I want to mm-hmm. see the original. I want to see the original. Yeah, cast. I, I wanted to see the original too. It was good. Okay, well, I got to remember that. <laughs> and if you don't have it, you have a smart TV, but you have to you have to pay the money. I had to pay the money to sign up for an account. It was $60, but it was $60 well spent considering that those Hamilton tickets are still oh, big three, time. four, five hundred $500. Big time, when big Bra- time. If Broadway ever comes back. I and know. initially they were around, people were paying anywhere from 800 to to $1,000 per ticket when it first came out on Broadway. So... $60 was money well spent. Big time, big time. Well, I have to remember yeah. that. Mm-hmm. What is going on this week? Everything, Vicki, <laughs> everything. Well, like we were saying earlier, they have made it mandatory to, you know, they've done the mandate to wear the mask yeah, in public. Yeah, the governor came out yesterday, DeWine. I kept saying, you know, just as fast as he opened things, uh, Governor DeWine, even though he doesn't have Dr. Amy Acton with him, apparently they, they talk a lot from a close uh, friend of mine said that he still talks to her every day and that mandatory masks go into effect today at 6 o'clock in Trumbull County, which is my county, our county, uh-huh. Franklin County, Columbus, okay. uh, Dayton, which is forget the, Montgomery County, yes. Cleveland, Cuyahoga, mm-hmm. and Huron County. I'm not sure what city is Huron County. I don't know whether it's Toledo or what. But, but Oh, and Hamilton, which is Cincinnati. So those are considered hot spots, and uh, you will be fine if you don't have your mask on. So it's just it's actually, it's like acting like if people are going to act like children, then you have to make them act like children by putting them in timeout. So you have to forcibly make people do that because you've got, we've got to stop the, the chain. Viruses have to live on something else to, to, to survive. And so they have to jump from person to person to person. If you break that chain, then it dies. Mm-hmm. So we're giving them an opportunity to jump from person to person to person by not social distancing and not wearing our masks. So there you have it. So that's it. So sooner or later, you have to mandate. You know, they had to do that with um, seatbelts. Remember, they had to do that with seatbelts, make it a law? Yes. Because people wanted to kill themselves, you know. Absolutely. So, yeah. You know, to save lives. And so, you know, people, if people aren't going to adhere to safety practices and also you know you may go out there and crazy and say well you know I'm, like um some the young people are, are feeling you know they're invincible but you may be an asymptomatic carrier bringing it back to your grandmother who's on cancer chemotherapy or your child who may develop this new child syndrome after having covid or an elderly relative who's obese diabetic with hypertension so you're like typhoid mary i know I know. So, yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad because I 
like you know like you know i've always been been wearing my mask i don't care what i don't care what i wear my stuff when i go out simple thing Mm -hmm. they're not asking you to dig ditches they're not asking you to donate any money nobody's asking you to do anything but get a mask and even the surgeon general did a little um thing on youtube that shows you how to make a cloth mask. If you don't have the surgical mask, any mask is better mm -hmm. than no mask. I know. We will see because if we clamp this thing down now, you know, then yeah. by the time school starts, we, we'll be okay. We'll be okay. We'll be able to come out again. But yes. this way, right, we're not going to come out anytime soon. I know. So I'm glad for that. I'm glad for that. Yeah, me too. Now, the next thing you were telling me about it, the mayor of Atlanta, she tested positive. Yeah, I she tested positive for COVID. She apparently is had no symptoms. Um, of course, you know, Mayor Bottoms has been around uh, in the area. She's had a lot of stuff going on down there in Atlanta. She's Big on time. television all the time. Mm -hmm. And apparently her husband and one of her children, I think she has four kids, mm -hmm. tested positive. Another child tested negative and then two others are supposed to be tested, and that, uh, that she had seen her mother the day before that she would need to be tested, and that the day before she made announcements on social media and te national television, she hosted a news conference filled with a room of police, Fire Chief Randy Slaughter, three Atlanta City me Council members, media and family members of an eight-year-old shooting this victim, Sequoia Turner. She wore a mask but removed it to make, a, to make lengthy remarks about Turner's death which occurred Saturday near the Wendy's that had been occupied by armed demonstrators in the aftermath of Rayshard Brooks' police killing last month. So who knows where she got it or how she got it, but uh, yet again another famous person yes. shows you how the virus knows no names, you know, ages, race, color, creed, whoever. It will attack whomever it will attack whomever so, that's it I, we wish we're sending up prayers for mayor bottoms and hope that hope that she continues to do well because you just can't assume that if you're asymptomatic that it may not turn into something else so everybody has to be vigilant big time big time that just goes to show you you got to wear your mask all the time because when you talk do. it's spreading when you talk you know so, oh, well. Yeah, and now, and now, and, and some of my friends are coming back telling me that I said this months ago, mm -hmm. WHO is finally coming out saying that it is an airborne virus, mm -hmm. not just droplet. I said this from day one because it just didn't make sense with the infectivity that I was seeing. Mm -hmm. The people were that close to each other anyway. It had to be in the air. It had to be an airborne infection mm -hmm. and so now i don't know what took them so long but now they have come out and said that it is most likely an airborne most likely rather an airborne infection yeah because remember so, remember how to the, when they were having those cruises and the ships and everybody would be getting sick eventually and we were like because right. they sitting up there breathing that stuff. It, it had to be, right? It had to be airborne. It had to be. I mm -hmm. mean, that was the only explanation. It had to be airborne. So that's the latest on that. We always try to have some type of health something, some type of health news. But everything when we look, it's talking about COVID-19. <laughs> I know. Everything. Everything. But here's an article. 
It says COVID-19 outbreaks at meat processing plants are hitting minorities hard. And this is, you can find this article on Vicky Doe Fitness written by Health Day News. And it says ethnic and minority groups make up nearly all meat packing employees who've been infected during COVID-19 outbreaks at their plants, a new government study reveals. The stats show that nearly one of every 10 workers in affected plants were diagnosed with COVID-19 based on figures from 14 states that reported the total number of workers in facilities with outbreaks. Among infected workers, 87% were from racial or ethnic minorities. There have been 16,233 reported COVID-19 cases at 239 meat and poultry processing facilities located in 23 states, reporting stats to the, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention through May 31st, according to a July 7th analysis in the agency's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. Other workers with COVID-19 who reported their race or ethnicity, about 56% of infected employees were Hispanic and 19% were black. The report found whites represented 13% of cases and Asians accounted for 12%. Now this was said, the report concluded and said, ongoing efforts to reduce incidents and better understand the effects of COVID-19 on the health of racial and ethnic minorities are important to ensure that workplace specific prevention strategies and intervention messages are tailored to those groups most affected by COVID-19. Now, there were 86 deaths related to COVID-19 among the workers the CDC reported. The actual numbers are probably even higher than reported here, given that many states did not submit data for this report. And that was said by the CDC um, researchers led by Dr. Michelle Waltenberg. Outbreaks at meat packing plants were among the first signs that COVID-19 had started to reach into states previously unaffected by coronavirus. Meat and poultry processing plants employ an estimated 525,000 workers in about 3,500 facilities across the nation. And researchers said, this is what the researchers said in the background notes. These new numbers show that unsafe working conditions at meat packing plants place workers at high risk for COVID-19. And this was said by Dr. Robert Glater, an emergency physician at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City. He cited that the crowded working conditions a lack of personal protective equipment and inconsistent testing for the coronavirus as some of the major factors in the outbreaks reported among the country. According to the CDC report of the facilities with COVID-19 cases, 111 plants in 14 states reported their efforts to protect workers from the coronavirus. Now, 80% said that they screen workers upon entry. 77% required face covering. 65% install more hand hygiene stations. 63% 
educated the workers about how infectious diseases spread. 62% installed physical barriers between the workers. 37% offered COVID-19 testing. Just 37% oh, wow. mm -hmm, testing to employees. 22% closed temporarily to halt or prevent an outbreak. So not many closings. An infected person who coughs or sneezes produces aerosolized droplets that can remain airborne for at least 8 to 15 minutes. That's why, look, I'm going to tell you, I be spraying my Lysol. I've, I've always done that. I be spraying. <laughs> Nate goes, oh, my God, why you be spraying? Every time somebody talk, I be shh, 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 He was like, oh, my God, we can't I talk. We, we smell a night Lysol. I said, look, this spraying has helped us tremendously so I'm gonna keep spraying you better one of the things that I was helping to do this past week was uh open the butler and not only the spraying and the cleaning but now there's this amazing machine that you walk in front of with your face and it picks up your temperature so if your face turns a certain color you're not getting in there very interesting yes yeah that's so how you got to do all of that yeah you got to do all those things and so yeah so the cdc yeah. recommended in its report that plants also provide culturally appropriate health education materials to workers encourage employees to take sick leave when needed and screen workers for possible infection however efforts to screen workers as they enter the plant are probably fruitful since infected people without symptoms account for a large percentage of the COVID-19 cases and this is what Gladder said you know my thing is with all this stuff happening with these meat plants you know these packing plants and stuff I'm like shoot I might I might not eat some meat for a while I, you know, it, 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 you know, maybe those people that were not meat eaters may, might make you want to rethink. I mean, it makes me makes you want to rethink everything. You know, I noticed the other day, even in the store where they had those, they used to have those antipasto things, antipasto things that were out. There's no no buffet things anywhere anymore. Mm -mm. Nope. And with the meat packing thing, it makes you rethink. Although, you know, of course, cooking meat and all of that should kill the virus and so forth, but. You know, people still eat some meats raw. I know. That was never me. And the sad thing about it when those meat, and, you know, the meatpacking thing drove up a lot of the numbers in a lot of the states. Because when you see some of the states that have, you know, increased numbers, they were all, like the prisons. Some of the areas where the prisons were, those numbers were jacked up because all the inmates tested positive. And, and in some of these areas where they have these meatpacking industries, a lot of those numbers for the cities and stuff were jacked up because of the meatpacking uh, people. It was a tra and, and a lot of them were people of color that worked in there. So, yeah. Like I said, I've been rethinking that meat eating, and um, I've been doing a lot of plant-based eating. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. Definitely yeah, so. Me too. That's what's happening now, you know, everywhere. So we just got to be very on point we just got to be very on point and so d yeah what's the latest you got some latest for us no no other new information other than we're up to 130,000 deaths with covid in this country wow and i remember the new york times came out i guess it's been maybe about six weeks ago where they had two pages of the front page and the next page 
in little tiny print, they printed every single person that had died in this country from COVID. At that point, they had reached 100,000. So within approximately six weeks, we've had 30,000 more deaths. Wow. Let that sink in. I know. And that's just been over what? Four months, five months? About a six-week period. And and we've been into the disease, you know, since well, since the end of, of December. But in this country, really in January. Okay. Wow. That we've known of, yeah. So, yeah. So it's a lot, right? 130,000 people. That's the population of, when that came on this morning on CNN, some people were running down cities that had populations of 130,000 people. So that's like wiping out the population of some cities, some apocalyptic Armageddon kind of stuff. We just got to take it seriously. I don't think people are taking it um, seriously enough. Now, I don't think so, but they will be made to because now they will be, at least in these counties, made like, you know, what was it, click it or ticket for the seatbelt? Yes. That was enforced. They, they, people had to get get up with that. So click it or ticket. Yes. And then the texting, remember? People texting while right. driving. Somebody said mask it or cash. Mask it or cash. <laughs> that's oh, that's that's kind of that's <laughs> really tough. Yeah, that's really tough right there. Yeah. You know, because you know, if if everybody, you know, and there's a lot of research that's showing that yeah, even if you if everybody put a mask on, you know, I know we all can't wear the the N95, but at least you put some right. type of mask on your face. It cuts down the spread. Yeah, people aren't even asking, yeah and people aren't even asking you, the healthcare, the community, the government, they're not asking you to, to wear these surgical masks like we might wear in the hospital and not certainly not asking you to wear N95, just asking you to wear a mask. That's not too much to ask. Surgeon General shows how you can put a bandana around your face. I know, I know. So, be no excuse. No excuse. That's it. No excuse. None. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Vicki Haywood Doe. I just wanted to break in for a quick second and introduce to you the sponsor and creator of this show. It's the company I own, Haywood Doe Consulting Co., doing business as Vicki Doe Fitness. We are a health and wellness consulting company that specializes in designing and implementing medically integrated applied exercise physiology-based fitness wellness programs, initiatives, events, health promotion, and health education for special populations such as older folks, children, adolescents, overweight and obese individuals, cardiac rehab, women's health, and those who have chronic diseases. We have a team and network of healthcare professionals based out of Northeast Ohio, and we've worked with many companies, schools, churches, and organizations. If your goal is to transform your life by taking a holistic approach to living a life of health and total well-being, get in touch with us at info at to find out more about our own site and online programs and services, go to vikidofitness.com. And now back to the show. Well, today we talk about COVID-19 and the African-American community. It's been reported that COVID-19 has disproportionately affected the black community. This really isn't surprising 
because we are the frontline workers. We're working in the grocery stores, postal services, hospitals, and all of that, but also because of the many health disparities that already exist in our communities. And so Ivanka Hall, the executive director of the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition, is here with us today to talk more about what she does, what her organization does in the Cleveland, Ohio community and what they're doing to help fight against health disparities and help with the COVID-19 pandemic. Let us listen now to Ivanka Hall. Here with us today is Ivanka Hall, the Executive Director of the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition and co-founder of the Cleveland Lead Safe Network. She is joining us to talk about her organization, which is the first organization in the state of Ohio dedicated to addressing disparities in health, employment, housing, and education in the community. She has been on the forefront helping our black community in Cleveland, Ohio, most especially as we deal with the devastating effects of COVID-19. So how are you today, Ivanka? I'm great. How are you? I am fine. And Dee, we are so happy that Ivanka is here with us, right? Yes, we are. Absolutely. So Ivanka, start by telling us about your organization, the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition, and, you know, how you became involved with this organization. In 1974, my mom was murdered in front of myself and my younger brothers. And I promised myself that I would use my life to help change the lives of others. And so as I started going through my journey in 2008, I hosted a local conversation on um, health disparities. And out of that conversation, I realized that there was no one talking about African-American health disparities, like nobody that was like dedicated just to talking about black folks, Um, that we had people who were talking about Native Americans and Asians and all these other communities, but we didn't have a voice. So I actually created the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition then, but at the time I was still the director of the Office of Minority Health. And so what happened was I went to another organization that, you know, one of their focuses was African Americans, and I said, don't you want to do this as part of your organizational charge? And they said, no, we still want to focus on everybody. And I said, but when you're focusing on everybody, who's focusing on you? Right. And and that's where the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition came. Okay. So in 2011, it became mine. And then I spoke out about the policing issue in Cleveland around 2015. And I was eliminated from my position for speaking out about policing. Then I started running the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition full time. So I've been running it full time since 2015, but it was established on August the 1st, 2011. When you say, um, Ivanka, that you were um, you were dismissed because of policing, you mean the some of the issues that we're seeing today with the police department? I actually am the person who the the bones and the skeleton of the consent decree came from me. So I actually organized a um, a local conversation on the Department of Justice in 2014, but the the conversation took place on the King Day weekend in 2015. Um, and it was to talk about these egregious issues that were going on within our police policing department from the report that the DOJ had brought out. So we actually used their report and crafted this um, conversation. 
and 450 members of the community came out to my conversation on one of the coldest days in Cleveland. We divided people out into work groups, into solution groups, and they gave the solutions for policing, and the solutions were part of this community corrective action plan, and that community corrective action plan was fed to the city, county, state, and federal government authorities, and it's actually available on the Department of Justice website because they were like, they had never seen anything like it that came out of the community. And so um, the city of Cleveland used my report to create the consent decree. So I've been doing this policing issue for a very long time. I've been doing lead issues for a long time. A lot of the disparity issues that impact, disproportionately impact the community are the issues that my organization seeks to talk about. So how is it accepted up there? Do you have folks trying to help solve the issues or do you have pushback? Well, it's not only here. I mean, you all have a problem in, in Youngstown and Warren, too, with your Big police. time, big time. Um, and, and, we have, we, and we have them all over the country. Mm-hmm. And, and part of it, it goes back to the riots, the Huff riots in 1968, um, 1967. It goes back to those riots. So during that time, um, former Mayor Carl Stokes, actually, um, he had a lot of power as a mayor. And so he was able to go to the police department and say, guess what? There will be no white police officers patrolling black communities. And so he pulled all of the white patrols from Huff. And when he pulled the white patrols from Huff, the people who were really not in it for patrolling of actually taking care of black folks, the, the, the people who were the police officers who were part of these white supremacist hate groups and the Klan and all of those other things got mad. And so right after that, their collective bargaining changed all across the country. And it took that power from the mayor. So there's not a mayor that could ever do that again until we take that power back. Wow. That's amazing. I know. So I just met you just a few years ago, and I didn't know that you have been in the trenches fighting for our community all these years. And so kudos to you. Oh, this is 26 years. I started off doing HIV research. So I'm a researcher. Okay. Um, and I started off doing research in HIV because you know, African-Americans were being hard hit and nobody was talking about us. So we found out like there was a, there was actually a test that, that was done um, without the consent of African-American women. They tested African-American babies here and across the country, found out that women were positive, didn't tell them they were positive and sent their babies home without telling the parents that they had HIV. And so I was part of that the original team that went out to find these women. And for me, after that, I started fighting like hell. I'm like, we got to fight because, I mean, if they, these things are, we talk about these experiments, but that was an experiment. I mean, when you send people home and you knowingly know that they have a virus that can impact the whole community and you say nothing, you know, what other community does that happen in? That's it. And that's, that's what we call health disparities. So, you know, we talk about health disparities, but I don't know if people really know the definition, you know, how how it's defined and how it relates to the black community. So could you do that for folks listening? Sure. I do a, I do a quick version of it because, you know, like sometimes with, with, when we talk about health disparities, we kind of get technical. Mm-hmm. But basically it's the preventable dis, um, difference of disease, disability, and death. And it's for the opportunity to achieve the best health experienced by African-Americans. Because of all of the things that are going on in our community, we have the inability, like these are preventable things that are preventable, but because of racism and systemic issues within our systems, black people are more impacted by the burden of disease, disability, and death, or the opportunity to achieve their best health. 
and that's what a health disparity is. Well, you know, the next thing comes up that's happening right now with COVID. So I guess, you know, I we just before we got on the phone, we were talking about getting ready to touch on COVID and, and some of these other issues. So how has, I mean, when I when we first started taking care of COVID patients, I think our main goal was just to keep people alive because pe- people were coming in the emergency room and they were dying within days. And so I'm really mm-hmm. not sure. I can, I can say from my perspective here at our hospital, and we're the only ID doctors here, we weren't really looking at people to see if you were black, white, green, purple, or blue, or whatever. And for me, it really wasn't until we were in this for about two weeks that not in Youngstown but other areas that people started to talk about the disparities in terms of who was affected. So when did you find out about this with COVID, and how did you all start working on the problem? This is, this is how I found out about COVID. So I found out about COVID in December, and it didn't have a name. So I had an aunt who was extremely ill, and she was in quarantine. And I'm like, and she said, yeah, you know, you know, the, the doctors were coming in, and they had on these um, – suits and I'm like what and we were at my uncle's funeral one of my uncles had died she was there with all of us and she was sick I said when did they release you and she said oh I was tired of it and I just left and I'm like excuse me so she had been under quarantine nobody at the hospital knew what was wrong with her which takes us very back to the beginning of COVID like we could not ex- exactly explain mm. what was going on we mm. just knew people were coming in with these symptoms and the symptoms started to change and so people you know, we're coming in with diarrhea and, you know, it wasn't just like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm having this stomach upset. And that's where the whole thing around toilet paper came in. Okay. Like, <laughs> okay. People are having this diarrhea and what's going on with this? Okay. They got a virus. Okay. Well, what kind of virus? And so all of a sudden people are like, oh, you got to get toilet paper. And that's where the toilet paper started disappearing off the shelves. And then it was, you know, just I'm glad having you're saying that because I couldn't figure that one out. <laughs> yeah, you know, so so, and as you know, from working in health health profession, the diarrhea is a sign. One of the things that goes along with COVID. You know, you all were very culturally, and I won't say culturally confident because cultural competency is understanding systems, but your system worked fine because you had people who were there. You had enough people that were there to understand your community to be culturally proficient. So you all didn't look at color. You looked at how to treat people to their best treatment possible. And that's not what happened across the country. Mm. So across the country, it wasn't the same way. Everybody wasn't received the same. Systems didn't treat black people um, with the care that they needed. Um, and a lot of people were sent home. You know, were going in complaining of illnesses, and they were sent home to die. You know, I told you earlier that there was a couple that I knew they went in thinking that they had the flu, was actually diagnosed. They said, you have the flu. They sent them home. The wife died the next day, and the husband died the following day. My girlfriend, who I had known since elementary school, who had just celebrated her 52nd birthday, you know, started complaining of having um, this cough in December, and it was messing with her asthma, and she just kept trying to fight it, fight it, fight it. And then one day, right after her birthday, the week later, she said, I don't feel good, y'all. She was on Facebook. She said, I don't feel good. I'm going back to the hospital. I can't. I literally cannot breathe. And she died that day. Wow. She had just turned 52 years old. And so we, we know that the, the disproportionate burden of disease, disability, and death beyond COVID has been um, more so 
on the African-American community. Wow. So what do you say, Dee? A lot of what um, she says is true as we have now, you know, we're into this for several months in terms of in different areas of the country, how African-Americans, and when I've talked about this and with talks, I mean, yeah, there are cer- certainly instances where people of color, not just African-Americans, but people of the Latinx population as well have been, were sent home and so forth. So, I, I mean, I would, I would, I would agree with, with that. So what do you think are, are the main social determinants that have affected people of color, black and brown people, with respect to, to this, as you see it from your perspective? And so remember that because the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition focuses exclusively on African Americans, I don't look at other status of other communities. I mean, because I mm-hmm. think that they have enough experts looking at their status. But I look at the comorbidities that disproportionately impact African Americans, hypertension, diabetes, having other chronic illnesses, having lupus, having MS, having some of those other things, um, sarcoidosis, you know, like things that are already disproportionately impacting you and they're actually breaking down your system and your ability for your system to fight. And so for us, you know, those are our things that we have to look at as real. You know, we have to understand, you know, because people are like, oh, well, we have these younger people that are dying. Like right now they're looking at people that are dying that are between, it's 26 years old and it's 49. Well, one of the things that we can understand about people that are 26 and 49 years old is that most of them, mm-hmm don't really go to the doctor enough to have been diagnosed with hypertension or diabetes yet. So they may have it and not know it. Right. Um, because young people don't go to the doctor. If you think that your health is pretty good, you know, you go to the doctor when you're sick. And so if you have a, a person who's 26 years old and they're like, oh, you know, I keep getting these headaches, they're not even equating the headaches with the fact that they may have hypertension. They're just like, oh, you know, I just won't, I just won't drink or I won't eat this kind of food. And not going to the doctor to say, okay, well, you need to be on blood pressure medication because your blood pressure is through the roof. I think that that's one of the things that's going on when we're talking about young people, you know, within this age group that we're looking at now. But with seniors, we know that seniors have, you know, things around because of aged. Um, they have other chronic issues, other things that disproportionately impact them. And then with, with African-American community, you know, one of our things, too, is our housing situation. You know, we still live in pretty packed houses, you know, contrary to popular belief. Like, I, I live in a pretty big house, and it's just me and my brother. But, I mean, I know families that if they had my house, it would probably be 20 people that would be packed up in here. Mm. Um, mm. Because, you know, the moms, the grandmothers, so you got a grandmother, you know, a mom, you might have her, her kids, you might have their kids that are all in these houses together. And so you have people with these different lifestyles. You have a sedentary senior. You have a mom that's, that's going out to, to other things. You have a, a daughter that's going out to the club. You have grandkids that are hanging with their friends. And so all of those are risk issues, risks that nobody wants to talk about around mm-hmm. the African-American community. And it's those risks that are associated with poverty. Exactly. Right. And so the thing is, okay, we know that. What can we do? You know, every time I talk, I... I tell people, you know, listen, don't be listening to folks. Put your mask on, you know, ha- do something, you know. But then come to find out a lot of folks can't buy the mask or don't have access to the mask, the face mask. So, you know, or hand sanitizers. A lot of the families that we service, uh-huh. you know, that was one of the first things they asked me for. Uh-huh. You know, the first, one of the first things besides food was, can you get us some toilet paper? And I'm like, sure. So I went, I found toilet paper. 
I went and got soap, you know, I went and got the things that they needed because just think, you know, if you have a stay in place order and you have children mm-hmm. um, and everybody's staying in place, that means whatever provisions you have are going to be used fast because everybody's there. There, yeah. And so if you if you were able to get away with using two bars of soap, you know, in a week, well, if everybody's there at the house, two bars of soap, you can use it's two gone. bars of soap in a couple of days, mm-hmm. you know, particularly if we're telling people to wash their hands. So, you know, for our families, we made sure that we provided toilet paper, soap, hand sanitizer, disinfectant for, for those who, who may have needed. And we also talked to them about it, like wash your doorknobs, your in and out on your bathroom doors, your bedroom doors, and your outside doors. Mm. Like wash those. Those things are, are touched a lot. And people don't really wash doors, wash handles mm-hmm. um, at home mm-hmm. because you're like, this is my safe space. Don't come in and unpack your groceries because that's the other thing. We come in with groceries, we're close to the kitchen, we unpack them. Wash your hands first and mm-hmm. then put them up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think relearning some things that we've gotten used to doing because we didn't have to worry about COVID. I know, I know. Uh, with that, you know, we were scheduled. We had to shut down the schools and everything. And that's when I noticed that you came up with a new program. What was it called? Brunch, brunch, lunch, brunch, or what was it called for the kids to feed the kids? It's called Babies and Brunch Project. Babies and Brunch Project. And I was like, wow. So, and then you had people volunteering to help. So tell us about that. I still do. So, so 16 weeks ago, something happened in our country that shut down our country as we knew it. And it shut down our school systems immediately. And so what happened was with this immediate shutdown, when you have school systems that are not, that are, that are tunnel visioned and don't look at the things that are going outside the classroom, when they put things in place, it may not be things that are in place that could address that current issue. And so that was one of the things it was around food. And so I called the schools and I said, okay, so for the, the kids that are, are getting the bus to school because they're handicapped or they have handicapped parents or caregivers, are you delivering their food? Because we want to keep them safe because if a child is, is handicapped or being raised by a caregiver with a handicap or a senior and something happens to their caregiver, what's going to happen to that baby? So for me, it was we need to make sure that these, that these families have the ability to stay in place without having to go to the stores looking for the things they need in order for them to be able to eat. And we originally started doing sandwiches. We were doing them every day, and it was three of us, me, Mickey, and Ebony. We were taking, to the 25 families, we were taking food every day. Like, they would take one group of families, I would take a group of families, like, we were all delivering. But we would make up these foods, and then the governor said, you know, we need people to stay at home. And I'm like, okay. Let's figure out a way where we can break this down more. Ebony and Mickey dropped off, so it just ended up being by myself. And so I'm like, okay, well, we can't go out every day, so let's see if I can get some people to help, and we can do it once a week. So it went from once a week to every two weeks, and now we take out a month's supply. So they get a month's worth of provisions um, at one time, and they get a gift card to, to, to make up for it because now we're a little bit more open. And we give them, you know, we, we provide food for the kids. So we do breakfast, lunch, and we do all of their snacks because, you know, kids like to run to the store and get snacks. So we're trying to figure out a way where, you know, families wouldn't have to run to the store and get snacks, that we're giving them snacks. That they have movie snacks, that they have movie night, that they have s'mores night, that they have, 
you know, all these different things that are going on. But we have provided, in 16 weeks, we have provided 30,000 breakfast, lunches, and snacks wow. for my house. Wow, that's amazing. Where, um, Ivanka, where, do you get your, where are you getting your funding from? People donate. Like, you see people donate to me on Facebook? Yeah, people have donated or, you know, early on people would, like, I would look out my window and I would see cars driving up my driveway. I have a table on my back patio. And they would leave stuff on my back patio and leave. Like they would put bread up there and oatmeal and cereal boxes. And, and then people started donating dollars. It cost me, originally when we started, we, we didn't have a budget. It was like, okay, well, we're going to do this. How are we going to do it? And I had a credit card. And I used my credit card. And it cost $2,500 a week to do this. So it cost me wow. $10,000 a month. But um. But I wanted to make sure that, that our families had the things that they needed. And, you know, just to hear, you know, like some of the babies, you know, like they'll come to the door, we go to drop off things, um, and they'll say thank you. And just to, you know, see them and, and know that they're excited to see me. Like I have a, a young man with autism. He's about five years old. His mom said he's been waiting so he can tell you thank you. And he hid, hid me behind her leg, and he said thank you, and then took off running. But she said when he... When he knows the lady is coming, he's excited. Like, okay, well, where's that lady? But I'm not the one that delivers anymore. You know, I have volunteers who come out and deliver for me um, because um, I have cancer. And so because I have cancer, I have to, to kind of be in the background a little bit more. My volunteers have been, been great to me. They, they come and deliver the food to the families. And then my, I have a niece who drives from Columbus to help me pack up all of the bags. And if you've ever seen a picture of the bags, they line up. I have I have a pretty big yard. I live on an acre. And they line up my whole entire yard going from the back to the front. Okay. Um, so just bags of food. And then the, as the cars pull in, they pop their trunks, we load their food, and then they we give them the address that they're going to, and that's it. Well, that's good. You're that's doing amazing. you're doing a lot of good things in the neighborhood. Is, as they say, a little good in the neighborhood. Yes, you are. <laughs> I know you have talked about lead in the housing of our community. I know you are part of the Cleveland Lead Safe Network. So what are some of the things you're doing? Because I know that it, it, lead poisoning affects a lot, especially here, too, in our community here in Youngstown and Warren, the children, because they, they eat the paint. They eat the paint off the walls and stuff. So what are you guys doing? What are you guys doing to try to deal with the lead problems in our housing? What happens is if you have an older home, if you have homes, um, and we all do and in our communities, have homes, 90% of the homes in Cleveland, 80% in our first ring suburbs were built before 1978. The homes that were built before 1978 have lead in them. Our rates in Cleveland, the rates in Michigan are about 7% in okay. Flint, Michigan. Okay. So is that our right? rates? I in, did not realize yeah, that. So, so we have some neighborhoods where um, 42% of the children are impacted by lead. So we know that one in four children okay. test positive for lead every day. Now, because of COVID, they haven't been doing the testing because, you know, again, we got systems that don't really do what they're supposed to do in the middle of an emergency. Like, systems aren't supposed to stop in an emergency. They're supposed to be hypervigilant to figure out how those other systems can be incorporated into the emergency. We haven't quite learned that yet. Okay. And so what's happening is now you've got kids who are at home all the time. Right. Because remember before, they were at school. You remember where they were at daycare. Right. 
And so now if there's lead in the house, they've been exposed to all of this lead for 16 weeks. So when we come out of this, we're, I think we're going to have, you know, a whole bunch of, of children that are poisoned. We really have to, you know, be vigilant about making sure that our communities are addressed. You know, at one time we had um, uh, almost half the schools in, in the city of Cleveland had lead in their water source. So I'm thinking, okay, how many parents went to school and took their babies to go see about their older kids that were having problems in school and filled up their water bottles for their babies with the milk out of the machines at school and you poisoned your baby? A lot of our schools, they've torn down, but we still have, you know, old schools. I had a, a old school across the street from me that was built in the early 1900s. And so they were tearing the school down. Didn't send out a note to us anything. So one day I walked out of my house I walked to my car, and it was this white stuff all over my car. Like, where is this stuff coming from? Like, it looked like a bomb went off. I'm like, what is going on? And I looked out at all this dust in the air. Okay. And realized that the people across the street were tearing down the building without following any of the EPA guidelines. Okay. Which is wetted. You're supposed to wetted areas that are being torn down. Okay. So what we have discovered is that a lot of these buildings that are torn down in our community, houses, buildings, old malls, they're tearing them down and they're just spreading lead over our communities. On a, on a day that's not windy, mm-hmm. lead can travel for three miles. On okay. a day when it's windy, mm-hmm. it can travel for more. And so that mm-hmm. means it impacts everybody, you that, know, that's um, and so that, that's important for us to know about lead. I see that you and your organization, you guys are doing a lot of things, and we appreciate that. Um, You usually have your annual event to help, you know, do the fundraising for your organization. And I was blessed to to participate last year. What are you going to do this year? Because, you know, we probably can't meet up and do stuff. You're going to do some virtual workshops and things. What are you going to do? We're still going to we're going to host our conference uh, again this year. But except for, um, you know, as in previous years, the conference will be more of these a conference series. So it will take place over a month. Okay. Um, so every Friday for a month, we'll be focusing on different things, whether we're focusing on um, health and fitness, whether we're focusing on chronic disease. Racism is one of them, and I actually have some um, national experts on racism that are will be on like the very first one we have mental health and african-americans i mean we we have i mean we're this is more than just the age of COVID. we got to remember we got COVID going on we got this policing issue going on we got all of these things like we're in this 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 pot and the pot is boiling over and so what's happening is all of these issues are disproportionately impacting our community so our community was already stressed Right, And so now we're, we're looking at stress in a whole different way because, like, for me, I could stay at home for 365 days. Like, I'm good. Like, if they said, yeah, for the next 365 days, you can just stay at your house, I'm okay. But everybody in our community does not have that luxury. Yeah, they do and not. So we're talking yes. about mm-hmm. houses that are poisoned. We're talking about houses that are non-existent. You know, we're more likely to be homeless than anybody else. And particularly right now, we had a lot of people who – even though they were not supposed to be evicted, we've had people that are evicted. Like I, I rode in the community last Saturday, uh-huh. and um, I rode past the casino, and you know, just in my on my way to the store, and I, I looked at the number of cars that were in the parking lot. But then I looked and realized that there was a man who was living in the bus stop, and then I passed another bus stop about two miles down the road, and there was someone else who was living in the bus stop, 
Then I passed another bus stop, and there was someone else who was living in a bus stop. Wow. So we we have to do better. Yes, we do. We we definitely have to do better. Um, and as I'm sitting here listening to you, you're right. Just because of COVID, that, that doesn't stop other issues and disparities that are continually going on. And I like the comment that you made about, you know, when something happens, that you, your, your system shouldn't break down, that there should be a plan in effect for all the other systems to continue. Like you said, the continue-led, you know, policing and, and so forth. So you're right about that. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, Yvonne- yeah, and so, you know, for me, I, you know, I have a, I'm, I'm writing a book while I'm doing all this. And so the name of my book is um, The Cure for Trauma is Justice. And so for me, the, the cure for our trauma is justice. And we have been traumatized all the way around, whether you're talking about babies um, around infant mortality or whether you're talking about um, seniors. Our community has been far more traumatized than any other community, whether it's economics, whether it's educationally, um, whether it's around housing, um, whether it's around healthcare and healthcare access. We, we have more trauma in that pipeline because we have structural deficits that impact us um, from the beginning to the end. All right. And tell us now, tell us how can people get in touch with you? Make sure you tell us what are some of the resources that people can tap into before you leave. So tell us. So they can they can contact me. They can contact us easier via email. Um, our email is neobhc at gmail.com. So it's our acronym, Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition. But it's neobhc at gmail.com. They can call us at 216-295-0283. We have a PayPal account. They can donate through PayPal. You know, they can donate through our cash app. You know, if they go to the website for the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition, you know, they can, you know, look at some of the things that we done, have done, are doing. You know, we, we do a lot of work for a small agency that is um, relatively non-funded. We rely on our, our donations. Our donors are what keeps us afloat. This has been very interesting. Thank you so much and for all the information. Yes, a lot of information oh, you were given us. And it's nice to know that you're doing a lot of good things in Cleveland, Ohio. And we will definitely spread the word. Right, Dee? Absolutely. I want to thank y'all for having me on. I appreciate it. I, you know, I appreciate you all, you know, taking the time to, to talk with me. I'm sure my volunteers, um, the people who are part of the Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition, Appreciate it too. We do a lot of a lot of good work, um, and I and I do have ties. I do do things in Youngstown when I'm able to be there. But because of this, you know, I'm not able to do all of the the things that we do in in other cities also. So and in Warren, like we normally do the the health fair on the square, and you know we that was canceled this year. And you know in Youngstown we do some things with Hope um, Community Services. So you know all of those things that we do are canceled. We do the CPR usually for the African-American male wellness walk. And so it, it's just a different time. And I think we ha- this, is a, this is a learning curve that, that's going to change all of our lives. So it'll never go back to the way it was. Exactly. So we have to figure out how to make it better going forward. Exactly. All right. And so thank you. Now this ends our show, Dee. So do you have some tips that we should think about? Yes, I do. I enjoyed uh, Ivanka's talk today. I think she brought up a lot of good points. She certainly described what healthcare disparities, the definition of healthcare disparities, and the impact that we've touched on here on our program that it's had on COVID and the good things that she's doing in the community 
with health care disparities and COVID. Her program for feeding kids who've been out of school is very impressive. They brought meals to, I think she said, something like 30,000 individuals. And also her program to work on lead, children with lead, um, was very impressive. So it was great. Really good to hear the good things that she's doing. As we say, doing a little good in the neighborhood. That's it. Doing a little good in the neighborhood. And so, yeah, sometimes, sometimes, you know, she was saying, and then for all of us too, a lot of us, you know, when they close down, close down, shut in, stay at home, a lot of us with our businesses, we could stay at home. But like she was saying, and you have always said, some folks, they can't stay at home. You know, they are considered, no, they were considered, Right. They were considered essential workers. And so we always have to keep that in mind. We have to keep in mind the little ones. You know, they're trying to reopen up schools during the fall. But yeah, sometimes, you know, they stuck at home trying to go through school. So this pandemic has left a lot of challenges for everyone and most especially for our communities. And so, yeah, we thank we thank folks like Ivanka Hall that are out there trying to yeah. solve some of these problems, right, Dee? Absolutely, absolutely. And to find out more about Ivanka Hall and her organization, go to Northeast Ohio Black Health Coalition. That's www.neoblackhealthcoalition.org. And as always, for more information, go to our website, www.vikidofitness.com. And remember, if you have any questions, comments, or just something to say, tweet us, email us, go on Facebook, and share with us your thoughts. You've been listening to It's All About Health and Fitness with Dr. Vicki Hayward-Doe and Dr. Virginia Banks-Bright. Vicki Doe is owner of Vicki Doe Fitness, a multimedia health and wellness forum, a place to discuss, learn, and participate in healthy living. You can get in touch with Vicki by email at info at vickidofitness.com.